The following is a conversation with Thomas Sanholm. He's a professor at SAMU and co-creator of Labratus, which is the first AI system to beat top human players in the game of Heads Up, No Limit, Texas Hold'em. He has published over 450 papers on game theory and machine learning, including a best paper in 2017 at NIPS, now renamed to New Rips, which is where I caught up with him for this conversation. His research and companies have had wide-reaching impact in the real world, especially because he and his group not only propose new ideas, but also build systems to prove that these ideas work in the real world. This conversation is part of the MIT course on Artificial General Intelligence and the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman spelled F-R-I-D. And now, here's my conversation with Thomas Sanholm. Can you describe at the high level the game of poker, Texas Hold'em, heads up, Texas Hold'em, for people who might not be familiar with this card game. Yeah, happy to. So Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em has really emerged in the AI community as a main benchmark for testing these application-independent algorithms for imperfect information game solving. And this is a game uh, that's actually played by humans. You don't see that much on TV or casinos because, uh, well, for various reasons, but uh, you do see it in some expert level casinos and you see it in the best poker movies of all time. It's actually an event in the World Series of Poker, but mostly it's played online and typically for pretty uh, big sums of money. And this is a game that usually only experts play. So if you uh, go to your home game, on a Friday night, it probably is not going to be heads up, no limit, Texas Hold'em. It might be uh, no limit, Texas Hold'em in some cases, but typically for a, a big group and it's not as competitive. While heads up means it's two players, so it's really like me against you. Am I better or are you better? Much like chess or or, or go in that sense, but an imperfect information game, which makes it much harder because I have to deal with issues of... Uh, you knowing things that I don't know, and I know things that you don't know, instead of pieces being nicely laid on the board for both of us to see. So in Texas Hold'em, uh, there's a, two cards that you only see, the, they yes. belong to you. Yeah. And then there's, they gradually lay out some cards that add up overall to five cards that everybody can see. Yeah. So the imperfect nature of the information is the two cards that you're holding. Up front, yeah. So as you said, you know, you first get two cards in private each, and then you uh, there's a betting round. Then you get three cards in public on the table, then there's a betting round. Then you get the fourth card in public on the table, there's a betting round. Mm -hmm. Then you get the fifth, fifth card on the table, there's a betting round. So there's a total of four betting rounds and four tranches of information revelation, if you will. The, only the first tranche is private. And then it's public from there. And this is probably, probably by far the most popular game in AI and uh, just the general public in terms of imperfect information. So it's probably the most popular spectator game to watch, right? So, which is why it's a super exciting game to tackle. So it's it's on the order of chess, I would say, in terms of popularity, in terms of AI setting it as the bar of what is intelligence. So in 2017, Libratus, how do you pronounce it? Libratus. Libratus. Libratus beats... A little Latin there. A little bit of Latin. Uh, Libratus beats a few, uh, four expert human players can you describe that event what you learned from it what was it like what was the process in general for people who have not read the papers and uh, yeah. uh study yeah so the event was that uh we invited four of the top 10 players who these are specialist players in heads up no limit texas hold'em which is very important because this game is actually quite different than the the multiplayer version we brought them in to Pittsburgh to play at the Reverse Casino uh, for 20 days. We wanted to get 120,000 hands in because uh, we wanted to get statistical significance. Uh, so it's a lot of hands for humans to play, even for these top pros who play fairly quickly normally. 
so we couldn't just have one of them play so many hands. 20 days they were playing, basically morning to evening. And uh, I raised 200,000 as a little incentive for them to play. And the setting was so that they didn't all get 50,000. Um, we actually paid them out based on how they did against mm -hmm. the AI each. Yeah. So they had an incentive to play as hard as they could, whether they're way ahead or way behind or right at the mark of beating the AI. And you don't make any money, unfortunately. Right. No, we can't make <laughs> any money. So, so originally, a couple of years earlier, I uh, actually explored whether we could actually play for money because that would be, of course, uh, interesting as well. Uh, to play against the top people for money, but the Pennsylvania Gaming Board said no. So, so we, we couldn't. So this is much like an exhibit, like, uh, like for a musician or a boxer or something like that. Nevertheless, you were keeping track of the money and Labratus Le uh, won close to $2 million, I think. Uh, so so if, that, if it was for real money, uh, if you were able to earn money, that was a quite impressive and inspiring achievement just a, a few details what what were the players looking at i mean were they behind a computer what what was the interface like yes they, uh, they were playing much like they normally do these top players when they play this game they play mostly online so they're used to playing through a ui yes and they did the same thing here so there was this layout you could imagine there's a table yeah. uh, on a screen this the, the, the human sitting there and then there's the AI sitting there and the, the, the screen shows everything that's happening, the cards coming out and shows the bets being made. And we also had the betting history for the human. So if the human forgot what had happened in the hand so far, they could actually reference back and, 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 and so forth. Is there a reason they were given access to the betting history for? Well, we we just uh, uh, it it's a, they, it didn't really matter okay. that they, they wouldn't have forgotten anyway. These are top quality people, but uh, we just wanted to put out there so it's not a question of the human forgetting and the AI somehow trying to get advantage of better memory. So what was that like? I mean, that was an incredible accomplishment. So what did it feel like before the event? Did you? Have doubt, hope. What, where was your confidence at? Yeah, that's great. So, great question. So, uh, eighteen months earlier, I had organized a similar brains versus AI competition mm -hmm. with a previous AI called Cloudico, and we couldn't beat the humans. Uh, so, uh, this time around, it was only eighteen months later, and I knew that this new AI Libratus was way stronger. But it's hard to say how you'll do against the top humans before you try. So I thought we had about a 50-50 shot. And the international betting sites put us as a, us as a four to one or five to one underdog. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting that people really believe in people and, and over AI. Uh, not just people, <laughs> people don't just believe over believe in themselves, but they have overconfidence in other people as well compared to the performance of AI. And uh, yeah, so we were a four to one or five to one underdog. And even after three days of beating the humans in a row, we were still 50-50 on the international betting sites. Do you think there's something special and magical about poker in, in the way people think about it? In the sense you have, I mean, even in chess, there's no Hollywood movies. Poker is uh, the, the star of many movies. And there's this feeling that uh, certain human facial expressions and body language, eye movement, all these tells are critical to poker. Like you can look into somebody's soul and understand <laughs> their betting strategy and so on. So that's probably why, the, possibly, do you think that is why people have a confidence that humans will outperform? Because AI systems cannot, in this construct, perceive these kinds of tells. They're only looking at betting patterns and uh, and nothing else the <laughs> betting patterns and and statistics so what's more important to you if you step back on human players human versus human what's the role of these tells of these uh, ideas that we romanticize yeah so i i'll t split it into two parts so one is why do humans trust humans more than AI and yeah. all have overconfidence in humans. Yes. I think that's that's not really related to the, the tell question. Mm -hmm. It's just that uh, they've seen these top players, how good they are, and they're really fantastic. So it's just hard to believe 
that you can uh, for that the Neya could beat them. Yes. So I think that's where that comes from. And and that's actually maybe a more general lesson about AI that un- until you've seen it overperform a human, it's hard to believe that it could. But um, then the tells um, a lot of these top players, they're so good at hiding tells that among the top players, it's actually not really mm. worth it for them to invest a lot of effort trying to find tells in each other because they're so, so good at hiding them. So uh, yes, at the kind of Friday evening game, tells are going to be a huge thing. Mm-hmm. You can read other people, and if you're a good reader, you'll, you'll read them like an open book. But at the top levels of poker now, the tells become a, less, a much, much smaller and smaller aspect of the game as you go to the top levels. The, the amount of strategies, the amounts of possible actions is uh is very large uh 10 to the power of 100 plus uh, so there has to be some i've read a few of the papers related um there has it has to form some abstractions of various hands and actions so what kind of abstractions are effective for the game of poker yeah so you're exactly right so uh when you go from a game tree that's 10 to the 161 especially in an imperfect information game it's way too large to solve directly even with our fastest equilibrium finding algorithms so uh you want to abstract it first and abstraction in games is much trickier than abstraction in mdps or other single agent settings because you have these abstraction pathologies that if I have a finer grained abstraction, mm-hmm. the strategy that I can get from that for the real game might actually be worse than the strategy I can get from the coarse grained abstraction. So you have to be very careful. Now, the, the kinds of abstractions, just to zoom out, we're talking about there's the hands abstractions and then there's betting strategies. Yeah, what, what betting actions, yeah. Betting actions. So, so there's information abstraction to talk about general games information abstraction which is the abstraction of what chance does and this would be the cards in the case of poker mm-hmm. and then there's action abstraction which is abstracting the actions of the actual players mm-hmm. which would be bits in the case of poker yourself and the other players yes yourself and the other players and uh for information abstraction we were completely automated so these were these are algorithms uh, they do what we call potential aware abstraction where we don't just look at the value of the hand but also how it might materialize into good or bad hands over time and it's a certain kind of bottom-up process uh, with integer programming there and clustering and various aspects how do you build build this abstraction Mm -hmm. and then in the action abstraction there it's largely based on how um humans other um, and other AIs have played this game in the past but in the beginning we actually used an automated action abstraction technology which is provably convergent that it finds the optimal combination of bet sizes but it's not very scalable so we couldn't use it for the whole game but we used it for the first couple of betting actions so what's more important uh the strength of the hand so the the information abstraction or the uh, how you play them uh, the actions does it you know the romanticized notion again is that it doesn't matter what hands you have that the actions the betting uh, may be the way you win no matter what hands you have yeah so that's why you have to play a lot of hands so that the role of luck gets smaller so uh, you you could otherwise get lucky and get some good hands and then you're going to win the match even with thousands of hands you can get lucky uh, because there's so much variance in no limit Texas Hold'em, because if we both go all in, it's a huge stack uh, of variants. So there are these massive swings in uh, No Limit Texas Hold'em. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have to play not just thousands, but uh, over 100,000 hands to get statistical significance. So let me, let me ask another way this question. If you didn't even look at your hands, but they didn't know that, the opponents didn't know that, how well would you be able to do? Uh, that's a good question. There's actually, I heard this story that there's this Norwegian female poker player called Annette Oberstad, mm-hmm. who's actually won a tournament by doing exactly that. But that would be extremely rare. So, so I, uh, I, you, you can't, you <laughs> cannot really play well that way. <laughs> well, that, okay. So, so the, the hands do have some role to play. Okay. Yes. So Labradus does not uh, use 
as, as far as I understand, uh, use learning methods, uh, deep learning. Is there room for learning in, uh, you know, there, there's no reason why Labradis doesn't, you know, combine with an AlphaGo type approach for estimating the quality uh, for a function estimator. W what are your thoughts on this? Maybe as compared to another algorithm, which I'm not that familiar with, DeepStack, the, the engine that does use deep learning that is unclear how well it does, but nevertheless uses deep learning. So what are your thoughts about learning methods to aid in the way that uh, Libratus plays the game of poker? Yeah, so as you said, Libratus did not use learning methods and um, played very well without them. Since then, we have actually, actually here, we have a couple of papers on things that do use learning techniques. Excellent. Uh, so, um, and, and deep learning in particular. And uh, sort of the way you're talking about where it's learning an evaluation function. Mm -hmm. But um, in imperfect information games, unlike, let's say, in Go or now, now also in chess and shogi, mm -hmm. it's not um, sufficient to learn an evaluation for a state because the value of an information set uh, depends not only on the exact state, but it also depends on both players' beliefs. Like, if I have a bad hand, I'm much better off if the opponent thinks I have a good hand. And vice versa, if I have a good hand, I'm much better off if the opponent believes I have a bad hand. Mm -hmm. uh, so the value of a state is not just a function of the cards. Uh, it depends on, uh, if you will, the path of play, but only to the extent that is captured in the belief distributions. So, so that's why it's not as simple as, uh, as it is in perfect information games. And I don't want to say it's simple there either. It's, of course, right. very complicated computationally there too. But at least conceptually, it's very straightforward. There's a state, there's an evaluation function, you can try to learn it. Here, you have to do something more. Uh, uh, and uh, what we do is in one of these papers where looking at allowing where we allow the opponent to actually take different strategies mm -hmm. at the leaf of the search tree as, as if you will and and that uh, is a different way of doing it and it doesn't assume therefore a particular way that the opponent plays but it allows the opponent to choose from a uh, set of different continuation strategies and that forces us to not be too optimistic in our look ahead search and that's that's one way you can do sound look ahead search in imperfect information games which is very different difficult and in in, in you asked you were asking about deep stack yes. what they did uh, it was very different than what we do either in libratus or in this new work they were gen randomly generating various situations in the game then they were doing the look ahead from there to the end of the game as if that was the start of a different game. Mm -hmm. And then they were using deep learning to learn those uh, values of those states, but the states were not just the physical states, they include the belief distributions. When you talk about look ahead uh, for deep stack or with Libratus, does it mean considering every possibility that the game can evolve? Is, are we talking about extremely sort of like this exponentially growth of a tree? Yes, so we, we, we're talking about exactly that much like you do in alpha beta search or Monte Carlo tree search, but with different techniques. So there's a different search algorithm, and then we have to deal with the leaves differently. So if you think about what Libratus did, we didn't have to worry about this because we only did it at the end of the game. So we would always terminate into a real situation and we would know what the payout is. It didn't do these depth-limited look-aheads. But now in this new paper, which is called depth-limited I think it's called depth-limited search for imperfect information games. We can actually do sound depth-limited look-ahead. So we can actually start to do the look-ahead from the beginning of the game on because that's too complicated to do for this whole long game. So in Libratus, we were just doing it for the end. So, and then the other side, this belief distribution. So is it explicitly modeled what kind of beliefs that the opponent might have? Yeah, yeah it is explicitly modeled but it's not assumed. The beliefs are actually output, not input. Of course, the starting beliefs are input, but they just fall from the rules of the game because we know that the dealer deals uniformly from the deck. Mm -hmm. So I know that every pair of cards that you might have is equally likely. Yes. 
I know that for a fact. That just follows from the rules of the game. Of course, except the two cards that I have. I know you don't have those. Yes. Uh, you have to take that into account. That's called card removal, and that's very important. Is, is the dealing always co- coming from a single deck? In heads up, so yes. you can assume single deck. So, card you, so, so you, you know that if some if if I have the ace of spades, I know you don't have right. an ace of spades. Okay. Great. So in the beginning, your belief is basically the fact that it's a fair dealing of hands. But how do you adjust? Start to adjust that belief. Well, that's a, where this beauty of game theory comes. So Nash equilibrium, which John Nash introduced in 1950, mm-hmm. introduces what rational play is when you have more than one player. And these are pairs of strategies where strategies are contingency plans, one for each player, uh, so that neither player wants to deviate to a different strategy, Mm -hmm. given that the other doesn't deviate. But as a side effect, you get the beliefs from base rule. So Nash equilibrium really isn't just deriving, in these imperfect information games, Nash equilibrium doesn't just define strategies, it, it also defines beliefs for both of us. And it de- de- defines beliefs for each state. So at each state, uh, each, if they call information sets, mm-hmm. at each information set in the game, there's a set of different states that we might be in, but w- I don't know which one we're in. Mm-hmm. Nash equilibrium tells me exactly what is the probability distribution over those real-world states in my mind. How does Nash equilibrium give you that distribution so why so i'll do a simple example so yeah. you know the game rock paper scissors so we, we can draw it as player one moves first and then player two moves but of course it's important that player two doesn't know what player one moved mm-hmm. otherwise player two would win every time so we can draw that as an information set where player one makes one of three moves first and then there's an information set for player two mm-hmm. so player two doesn't know which of those nodes the world, uh, world is in. Mm-hmm. But right. once we know the strategy for player one, Nash equilibrium will say that you play one third rock, one third paper, one third scissors. From that, I can derive my beliefs on the information set that they're one third, one third, one third. So Bayes gives you that. Bayes so, gives you. But is that specific to a particular player or is it, uh, is it something you quickly update with those no, that's the, the game theory isn't really player specific, so that's what also why we don't need any data. Uh, we don't need any history how these particular humans played in the past or how any AI or human had played before. It's all about rationality. So we just think uh, the AI just thinks about what would a rational opponent do, and yes. what would I do if I were ra- I am rational, and what uh, that that's that's the idea of game theory. So it's really a data-free, opponent-free approach. So it comes from the design of the game as opposed to the design of the player. (laughs) Exactly. There's no opponent modeling per se. I mean, we've done some work on combining opponent modeling with game theory so you can exploit weak players even more. But that's another strand. And in Libratus, we didn't turn that on because I decided that these players are too good. And when you start to exploit an opponent, you typically open yourself up, self up to exploitation. And these guys have so few holes to exploit and they're world's leading experts in counter-exploitation. So I decided that we're not going to turn that stuff on. Actually, I saw a few of your papers on uh, exploiting opponents. It sounded very interesting to uh, explore. Uh, do you think there's room for exploitation generally outside of Libratus? Is, is there subject uh, or people differences that could be exploited Maybe not just in poker, but in general interactions, negotiations, all these other domains that you're considering? Yeah, definitely. We've done some work on that. And I really like the work that hybridizes the two. Mm -hmm. So you figure out what would a rational opponent do. And by the way, that's safe in these zero-sum games, two-player zero-sum games, because if the opponent does something irrational, yes, it might uh, throw off my beliefs, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the amount that the player can gain by throwing off my belief is always less than they lose by playing poorly. So so it's safe. But uh, still, if somebody's weak as a player, you might want to play differently to exploit them more. Mm -hmm. So you can think about it this way. A game theoretic strategy is unbeatable, but it doesn't maximally beat the other opponent. So the winnings per hand might be better 
with a different strategy. And the hybrid is that you start from a game theoretic approach, and then as you gain data from the, about the opponent in certain parts of the game tree, then in those parts of the game tree, you start to tweak your strategy more and more mm -hmm. uh, towards exploitation while still staying fairly close to the game theoretic strategy so as to not open yourself up to exploitation too much. How, how do you do that? Do you um, try to vary up strategies, make it unpredictable? It's like, uh, uh, what is it, uh, tit-for-tat strategies in um, Prisoner's Dilemma or... Well, it hasn't, that, that's a repeated game kind of repeated sim games, simple that's prisoner's right. dilemma, repeated S games. games yeah. but, but even there, there's no proof that says that that's the best thing. But experimentally, it actually does, <laughs> does, does well. So what kind of games are there, first of all? I don't know if this is something that you could just summarize. There's perfect information games where all the information is on the table. There is imperfect information games. There's repeated games that you play over and over. Uh, there's uh, zero sum games. Mm -hmm. uh, there's non zero sum games. Yeah, <laughs> and then there's a really important distinction you're making: two player versus more players. Mm -hmm. So, what are what other games are there, and what's the difference, for example, with this two player game versus more players? And yeah, what, what are the key differences in right. your view? So, let me start from the the basic. So, a repeated game. It's a game where the same exact game is played over and over. In these extensive form games, uh, where it's, think about tree form, maybe with these information sets to represent incomplete information, you can have kind of repetitive interactions. Even repeated games are a special case of that, by the way. But uh, the game doesn't have to be exactly the same. So like in sourcing auctions, yes, we're going to see the same supply base year to year, but what I'm buying is a little different every time and the supply base is a little different every time and so on. So it's not really repeated. Mm -hmm. So to find a purely repeated game is actually very rare in the world. So they're really a very uh, coarse model of what's going on. Then if you move up from re just repeated, simple repeated matrix games, uh, not all the way to extensive form games, but in between, there's stochastic games where, you know, there's these, uh, you think about it like li these little matrix games. Mm -hmm. And when you take an action and your opponent takes an action, they determine not which next state I'm going to, next game mm -hmm. I'm going to, but the distribution over next games where I might be going to. So, so that's the stochastic game. But it's like, Matrix games repeated, stochastic games, extensive form games. Mm -hmm. That is a, from less to more general. And and uh, poker is an example of the last one. So it's really in the most general setting, extensive form games. And that's kind of what the AI community has been working on and being benchmarked on with this heads up no limit Texas Hold'em. Can you describe extensive form games? What's what's the model here? Uh, yeah. So if you if you're you familiar describe? with the, the tree form, so it's really the tree form. Like in chess, there's a search tree versus a matrix. Versus is, a matrix. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that the matrix is called the matrix form or bi matrix form or normal form game. Mm -hmm. And here you have the tree form, so you can actually do certain types of reasoning there that you lose the information when you go to normal form. There's a certain form of equivalence, like if you go from three form and you say it, every possible contingency plan mm -hmm. is a strategy, then I can actually go back to the normal form, but I lose some information from the lack of sequentiality. Then the multiplayer versus two-player distinction yeah. is an important one. So two-player games in zero-sum are conceptually easier. Mm-hmm. And computationally easier. They're still huge, like this one. This one, mm -hmm. uh, but they're conceptually easier and computationally easier. In that, conceptually, you don't have to worry about which equilibrium is the other guy going to play when there are multiple, because any equilibrium strategy is the best response to any other equilibrium strategy. Mm -hmm. So I can play a different equilibrium from you, and we'll still get the right values of the game. Mm -hmm. That falls apart even with two players when you have general sum games. Even without cooperation, just even general. without cooperation. Okay. So uh, there's a big gap from two player zero sum to two player general sum, or even to three player zero sum. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a big gap, at least in theory. Can you maybe non mathematically provide the intuition why it all falls apart with three or more players? 
uh, it seems like you should still be able to have a Nash equilibrium that, yeah, that that's instructive, that holds. Okay, so it is true that all finite games have a Nash equilibrium. So this is what John Nash actually proved. So they do have a Nash equilibrium. That's not the problem. The problem is that there can be many. And uh. then there's a question of which equilibrium to select. So, and if you select your strategy from a different equilibrium and I select mine, then then what does that mean? Uh, And and in these non-zero-sum games, we may lose some joint benefit by being just simply stupid. We could actually both be better off if we did something else. Yes. And in three-player, you get other problems also like collusion. Like maybe you and I can gang up on a third player Mm -hmm. and we can do radically better by colluding. So there are lots of issues that come up there. So Noah Brown, the student you work with on this, has mentioned, uh, I looked through the AMA on Reddit, he mentioned that the ability of poker players to collaborate would make the game... He was asked the question of, how would you make the game of poker... uh, Or both of you were asked the question, how would you make the game of poker uh, beyond being solvable by current AI methods. And he said that there's not many (laughs) ways of making poker more difficult, uh, but collaboration or cooperation between players uh, would make it extremely difficult. So can you provide the intuition behind why that is, uh, if you agree with that idea? Yeah, so uh, uh, I've done a lot of work on uh, coalitional games Mm -hmm. and we actually have a paper here with my other student Gabriele Farina and some other collaborators on uh, at at NIPS on that actually just came back from the poster session where we presented (laughs) this but uh, so uh, when you have a collusion it's a a different problem and it typically gets even harder then even the game representations some of the game representations don't really allow good computation so we actually introduced a new game representation for, for that is that kind of cooperation part of the model? Is, are you do you have uh, do you have information about the fact that other players are cooperating, or is it just this chaos that where nothing is known? So, so there's some some things unknown. Can you give an example of a, a collusion type game, or, or is it usually so uh, like bridge? Right. So, so think about bridge. It's like when you and I are on a team, our payoffs are the same. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we can't talk. So, so when I get my cards, I can't whisper to you what my cards are. Mm-hmm. That would not be allowed. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to somehow coordinate our strategies ahead of time and only ahead of time. And then there are certain signals we can talk about, mm-hmm. but they have to be such that the other team also understands them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that, that's, that's an example where the coordination is already built into the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. But in many other situations like auctions or negotiations or diplomatic relationships, poker, it's not really built in, but it still can be very helpful for the colluders. I've read you write somewhere, the, the, with negotiations, you come to the table with prior, uh, like a strategy that like that you're willing to do and not willing to do those kinds of things. So how do you start to now moving away from poker, moving beyond poker into other applications like negotiations? How do you start applying this to other, to other domains? Yeah. Maybe even real world domains that you've worked on. Yeah. I actually have two startup companies doing exactly that. One is called strategic machine and that's for kind of business applications, gaming, sports, all sorts of things like that. Any applications of this to business and to sports and to uh, gaming, Mm -hmm. to various types of things in finance, electricity markets, and so on. And the other is called Strategy Robot, where we are taking this to uh, military security, cybersecurity, and intelligence applications. I think you worked uh, a little bit in, um, how how do you put it, advertisement, uh, sort of suggesting um, ads, Kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that's another op- company, optimized markets. Optimized but markets. that's much more about like a combinatorial market and optimization-based technology. That's not using these uh, game theoretic reasoning technologies. I see. Okay, so what high sort of high level do you think about our ability to use game theoretic concepts to model human behavior? Do you think do you think human behavior is amenable 
to this kind of modeling? So outside of the poker games and where have you seen it done successfully in your work? I'm not sure the goal really is modeling humans. Uh, uh, like for example, if I'm playing a zero-sum game, yes. I don't really care that the opponent is actually following my model of rational behavior, mm-hmm. because if they're not, that's even better for me. Right. So, so the, see, with the opponents and games, there's a the prerequisite is that you f- formalize the interaction in some way that can be amenable to analysis. I mean, you've done this amazing work with mechanism design, designing games that have certain outcomes. Uh, but so I'll tell you an example from my uh, from my world of autonomous vehicles. Right, okay. we're studying pedestrians and pedestrians and cars negotiate in this nonverbal communication. There's this weird game dance of tension where pedestrians are basically saying i trust that you won't kill me and so as a jaywalker i will step onto the road even though i'm breaking the law and there's this tension and the question is we really don't know how to model that well uh, in in trying to model intent and so people sometimes bring up ideas of game theory and so on do you think that aspect of human behavior can use these kinds of imperfect information approaches modeling how do we? How do you start to attack a problem like that uh, when you don't even know how the game to design the game to describe the situation in order to solve it? Okay, so I haven't really thought about jaywalking, mm-hmm. but one thing that uh, I, I think could be a good application in, 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 in autonomous vehicles is the following. So let's say that you have fleets of autonomous cars operating by different companies. So maybe here's the Waymo fleet and here's the Uber fleet. Uh, if you think about the rules of the road. They define certain legal rules, but that still leaves a huge strategy space open. Mm -hmm. Like as a simple example, when cars merge, Mm -hmm. you know, how humans merge, you know, they slow down and look at each other and uh, try to uh, try to merge. Wouldn't it be better if these situations would already be pre-negotiated so we can actually merge at full speed and we know that this is the situation, this is how we do it, and it's all going to be faster. Mm -hmm. But there are way too many situations to negotiate manually. So you could do, use automated negotiation. This is the idea, at least. You could use automated negotiation to negotiate all of these situations, or many of them, in advance. And of course, it might be that, hey, maybe you're not going to always let me go first. Maybe you said, okay, well, in these situations, I'll let you go first. Mm-hmm. But in exchange, you're going to give me to Amos, you're going to let me go first in these situations. Yes. So it's this huge combinatorial negotiation. And do you think there's room in that example of merging to model this whole situation as an imperfect information game, or do you really want to consider it to be a perfect? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Do you pay the price of uh, assuming that you don't know everything? Yeah, I don't know. It's certainly much easier. Games with perfect information are much easier. So if you can get away with it, uh, you should. But if the real situation is of imperfect information, then you're going to have to deal with imperfect information. Great. So what lessons have you learned? The annual computer poker competition, an incredible accomplishment of AI. You know, you look at the history of Deep Blue, AlphaGo, these kind of... um, Moments when AI stepped up in an engineering effort and a scientific effort combined to, to beat the best of human players. So what, what do you take away from this whole experience? What have you learned about designing AI systems that play these kinds of games? And what does that mean for sort of uh, AI in general, for the future of AI development? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, so there's so much to say about it. I do like this type of performance-oriented research mm-hmm. although in my group we go all the way from like idea to theory to experiments to big system building to commercialization so we span that spectrum but but i think that in a lot of situations in ai you really have to build the big systems and evaluate them at, at scale before you know what works and doesn't and we've seen that in the uh, computational game theory community mm-hmm. that there are a lot of techniques that look good in the small but then they cease to look good in the large and we've also seen that there are a lot of techniques that look 
superior in theory, mm-hmm. and I, I really mean in, in terms of convergence rates, better, like first order methods, better convergence rates like the CFR-based based algorithms, yet the CFR-based ba- algorithms are the first, fastest in practice. So it really tells me that you have to test this in re- reality. The theory isn't tight enough, if you will, to tell you which algorithms are better than the others. And uh, you have to look at these things in the large because any sort of projections you do from the small can at least in this domain be very misleading. So that that's kind of from, from a kind of a science and engineering perspective, from a personal perspective, it's been just a wild experience in that uh, with the first poker competition, the first, first uh, brains versus AI, man-machine poker competition that we organized. There had been, by the way, for other poker games, there had been previous competitions, but this was for heads up, no limit, this was the first. And uh, I probably became the most hated person in the world of poker. And I didn't mean to. I, I, I Why is that? Uh, they, for cracking the, the game for something. Yeah. It was, uh, a lot of people felt that it was a real threat to the whole game, the whole existence of the game. If, if, if AI becomes better than humans, people would be scared to play poker because there are these superhuman AIs running around taking their money and, you know, all of that. So, so I just, it was really aggressive. Uh, the comments were super aggressive. I got everything just short of death threats. <laughs> do, you, do you think the same was true for chess? Because right now they just completed the world championships in chess and humans just started ignoring the fact that there's AI systems now that outperform humans and they still enjoy the game. It's still a beautiful game. See, that's what I think. Yeah. And I think the same thing happens in poker. And so, so I didn't think of myself as somebody who's going to kill the game. And I don't think I did. Yeah. I've really learned to love this game. I wasn't a poker player before, but learned so many nuances about it the, from these AIs. And they've really changed how the game is played, by the way. Mm-hmm. So they have these very Martian ways of playing poker. And the top humans are now incorporating those types of strategies into their own play. So if anything, to me, our work has made poker a richer, more interesting game for humans to play. Not something that is going to steer humans away from it entirely. Just a quick comment on something you said, which is, if I may say so, in academia is a little bit rare sometimes. It, it's it's pretty brave to put your ideas to the test in the way you described, uh, saying that sometimes good ideas don't work when you actually try to apply them at scale. And so, where does that come from? I mean, what if you could do um, advice for people? What what drives you in that sense? Were you always this way? I mean, it, it takes a brave person, I guess, is what I'm saying, to test their ideas and to see if this thing actually works against human top human players and so on. Yeah, I don't know about brave, but it takes a lot of work. Uh, yes, it, it takes, takes a, a lot, lot of work. work and a lot of time uh, to organize, to make something big and to organize an event and stuff like that. And what drives you in that effort? Because you could still, I would argue, get a best paper award at NIPS as you did in 17 without doing this. That's right, yes. <laughs> and so and so, uh, <laughs> so in, in, in general, I believe it's very important to do things in, uh, in, in the real world and at scale. Uh, and that's really where the, 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 the pudding, if you will, proof yes. is in the pudding. That's, that's where it is. In this particular case, it was kind of a competition uh, between different groups yeah. uh, for many years as to who can be the first one to beat the top humans at Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em. So it became uh, it became kind of a uh, what's your, uh, like a competition who can get there. Yeah, so a little friendly competition can be uh, can do wonders for progress. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so the topic of mechanism design, which is really interesting, also kind of new to me, except as an observer of I don't know politics and any. I'm an observer of mechanisms, but you you write in your paper an automated mechanism design that that I quickly read. So me- mechanism design is designing the rules of the game. So you get a certain desirable outcome and you have this work on doing so in an automatic fashion as opposed to fine tuning it. So what have you learned from those efforts? Uh, if you look, say, I don't know, at a complex, like, um, like our political system, can we design our political system to have in an automated fashion uh, to have outcomes that we want? Can we design something like um, traffic lights 
uh, to be smart where it gets outcomes that we want. So what what are the lessons that you draw from that work? Yeah, so I still very much believe in the automated mechanism design direction. Yes. But it's not a panacea. There are impossibility results in mechanism design, saying that there is no mechanism that accomplishes objective X in class C. So so they, it, it's not going to, there's no way using any mechanism design tools, manual or automated, to do certain things in mechanism design. Can you describe that again? So meaning there, it's impossible to achieve that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ends, so, there's or certain it's impossible. unlikely? Uh, mean, impossible. Impossible. So, so, so these, are, these are not statements about human ingenuity who might come up with something smart. These are proofs yes. that if you want to accomplish properties X in class C, that is not doable with any mechanism. The good thing about automated mechanism design is that we're not really designing for a class. We're designing for specific settings at a time. So even if there's an impossibility result for the whole class, it just me- doesn't mean that all of the cases in the class are impossible. It just mm-hmm. means that some of the cases are impossible. So we can actually carve these islands of possibility within these known impossible classes. And we've actually done that. So well, one of the famous results in mechanism design is the Meyerson satterthwaite theorem for, by Roger Meyerson and Mark Satterthwaite from 1983. It's, it's an impossibility of efficient trade under imperfect information. We show that you can, in many settings, avoid that and get the efficient trade anyway. Depending on how you design the game. Okay, so... De- depending how you design the game. And of course, it's not, it doesn't in any way, any way uh, contradict the impossibility result. The impossibility result is still there, but it just uh, finds spots within this impossible class where in those spots you don't have the impossibility. Sorry if I'm going a bit philosophical, but uh, what lessons do you draw towards, like I mentioned, politics or human interaction and designing mechanisms for outside of just these kinds of trading or auctioning or um, purely formal games or human interaction, like a political system? What, how can do you think it's applicable to yeah politics or to? business, uh, to negotiations, these kinds of things, designing rules that have certain outcomes. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I do think so. Have you seen success that successfully done? They hasn't really... Oh, you mean mechanism design or automated mechanism? Automated mechanism design. So, so mechanism design itself has had fairly limited success so far. There are certain cases, but most of the real-world situations are actually not sound from a mechanism design perspective. Mm -hmm. Even in those cases where they've been designed by very knowledgeable mechanism design people, Mm -hmm. the people are typically just taking some insights from the theory and applying those insights into the real world rather than applying the mechanisms directly. So one famous example of is the FCC spectrum auctions. So um, uh, I've also had a small role in that, and uh, very good economists have been work- excellent economists have been working on that who know game theory. Yet the rules that are designed in practice there, they're such that bidding truthfully is not the best strategy. Usually, mechanism design we try to uh, make things easy for the participants, so telling the truth is the best strategy. Mm-hmm. But uh, but even in those very high stakes auctions where you have tens of billions of dollars worth of spectrum being auctioned, truth telling is not the best strategy. <laughs> and, and by the way, nobody knows even a single optimal bidding strategy for those auctions. What's the challenge of coming up with an optimal? Because there's a lot of players and there's imperfect. It's not so much a lot of players, but many items for sale. And the, these mechanisms are such that even with just two items or one item, bidding truthfully wouldn't be the best strategy. If you look at the history of AI, it's marked by seminal events. And AlphaGo being a world champion, human Go player, I would put Libratus winning the Heads Up No Limit Hold'em as one of such event. Thank you. And what, what do you think is the next such event? whether it's in your life or in the broadly AI community that you think might be out there that would surprise the world? 
So that's a great question, and I don't really know the answer. In terms of game solving, uh, Heads Up No Limit Texas Hold'em really was the one remaining widely agreed upon benchmark. So that was the big milestone. Now, are there other things? Yeah, certainly there are, but there there is not one that the community has kind of focused on. So what could be other things? Uh, there are groups working on StarCraft. There are th- groups working on Dota 2. These are video games. Yes. Or you could have like Diplomacy or Hanabi, you know, things like that. These are like recreational games, but none of them are uh, really acknowledged as kind of the main next challenge problem like chess or go or heads up no limit texas holden was so i I don't really know in the game solving space what is or what will will be the next benchmark i hope kind of hope that there will be a next benchmark because really the uh, different groups working on the same problem really drove these application independent techniques forward very quickly over 10 years do you think there's an open problem that excites you that you start moving away from games into real-world games, like, say, the stock market trading. Yeah, uh, so that's, that's kind of how I am. So I am probably not going to work as hard on these uh, recreational benchmarks. Uh, I'm doing two startups on game-solving technology, Strategic Machine and Strategy Robot, and we're really interested in pushing this uh, stuff into practice. What, what do you think would be uh, really you know, uh, a, a powerful result that would be surprising that would, would be, um, if you can say, I mean, it's, you know, five years, 10 years from now, something that statistically you would say is not very likely, but if there's a breakthrough, would achieve. Yeah. So I think that overall, we're in a very different situation in game theory than we are in, let's say, machine learning. Yes. So in machine learning, it's a fairly mature technology and it's very broadly applied and proven success in the real world. In game solving, there are almost no applications yet. We have just become superhuman, which machine learning, you could argue, happened in the 90s, if not earlier. And at least on supervised learning, certain complex supervised learning applications. Now, I think the next uh, challenge problem, I know you're not asking about it this way, you're, you're asking about the technology breakthrough. But yeah. I think that the big, big breakthrough is to be able to show that, hey, maybe most of, let's say, military planning or most of business strategy will actually be done strategically using computational game theory. That, that's what I would like to see as a next five or 10 year goal. Maybe you can explain to me again, uh, forgive me if this is an obvious question, but uh, you know, machine learning methods, neural networks are suffer from not being transparent, not being explainable. Uh, game theoretic methods, you know, Nash equilibria, do they generally, when you see the different solutions, are they, uh, when, when you talk about military operations, are they, once you see the strategies, do they make sense? Are they explainable or do they suffer from the same problems as neural networks do? So that's, that's a good question. I would say a little bit yes and no. And uh, what I mean by that is that these game theoretic strategies, let's say Nash equilibrium, mm-hmm. it has provable properties. So it's unlike, let's say, deep learning where you kind of cross your fingers, hopefully it'll work. And then after the fact, when you have the weights, you're still crossing your fingers and I hope it will work. Uh, Here, you know that the solution quality is there. There's provable solution quality guarantees. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the strategies are human understandable. That's a whole other problem. So, So I think that deep learning and computational game theory are in the same boat in that sense, that both are difficult to understand. But at least the game theoretic techniques, they have these guarantees of solution guarantees. quality. So do you see business operations, strategic operations, or even military in the future being at least the, the strong candidates being proposed by automated systems? Do you see that? Yeah, I do. I do. But that's more of a belief than a, uh, and a substantiated fact. Depending on where you land in optimism or pessimism, that's a really, to me, that's an exciting future, especially if there's uh, provable things in terms of optimality. So looking into the future, there's uh, a few folks worried about 
the especially you, you look at the game of poker which is probably one of the last benchmarks in terms of games being solved they they worry about the future and the existential threats of artificial intelligence so the negative impact in whatever form on society is that something that concerns you as much or are you more optimistic about the positive impacts of ai Oh, I am much more optimistic about the positive impacts. So just in my own work, what we've done so far, we run the nationwide kidney exchange. Hundreds of people are walking around alive today who would it be? And it's increased employment. You have, you have a lot of people now running kidney exchanges and at the transplant centers, uh, interacting with the kidney uh, exchange. You have extra surgeons, nurses, anesthesiologists, hospitals, all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so employment is increasing from that and the world is becoming a better place. Another example is uh, combinatorial sourcing auctions. We uh, did 800 large-scale combinatorial sourcing auctions from 2001 to 2010 uh, in a previous startup of mine called CombineNet. And um, we increased the supply chain efficiency on that $60 billion of spend by 12.6%. So that's over $6 billion of efficiency improvement in the world. And this is not like shifting value from somebody to somebody else, just efficiency improvement, like in trucking, less empty driving, so there's less waste, less carbon footprint, and so on. It's a huge positive impact in the near term, but sort of to, to stay in it for for a little longer, because I think game theory has a role to play here. Oh, well, let, let me actually come back on that. Yes. That's one thing. I think AI is also going to make the world much safer. So uh, so, uh, so that's another aspect that often gets overlooked. Well, let me ask this question. Maybe you can speak to the, the safer. So I, I talked to Max Tegmark and Stuart Russell, uh, who are very concerned about existential threats of AI. And often the concern is about value misalignment. So AI systems basically uh, uh, working, operating towards goals that are not the same as human civilization, human beings. So it seems like game theory has a role to play there uh, to to, uh, make sure the values are aligned with human beings. I don't know if that's how you think about it. If not, how do you think AI might help with this problem? Uh, how, how do you think AI might make the world safer? Yeah, I, I think this value misalignment is a fairly theoretical worry. And I haven't really seen it in because I do a lot of real applications. I don't see it anywhere. Uh, the closest I've seen it was the following type of mental exercise, really, where I had this argument in the late 80s when we were building these transportation optimization systems and somebody had heard that it's a good idea to have high utilization of assets. So they told me, hey, why don't you put that as objective? And we didn't even put it as an objective because I just showed him that, you know, if you had that as your objective, the solution would be to load your trucks full and drive in circles. Nothing would ever get delivered. You'd have 100% utilization. So yeah, I know this phenomenon. I've known this for over 30 years, but but I've never seen it actually be a problem in reality. And yes, if you have the wrong objective, the AI will optimize that to the hilt, and it's going to hurt more than some human who's kind of trying to solve it in a half-baked way with some human insight too. But I, I just haven't seen that materialize in practice. There's this gap that you've actually put your finger on very clearly just now between theory and reality that's very difficult to put into words, I think. It's what you can theoretically imagine, uh, the, the worst possible case or even, yeah, I mean, bad cases and what usually happens in reality. So, for example, to me, maybe it's something you can comment on. Uh, having grown up, in, I grew up in the Soviet Union, you know, there's currently 10,000 nuclear weapons in the world. And for many decades, it's uh, theoretically uh, surprising to me that the nuclear war is not broken out. Do you think about this aspect from a game theoretic perspective in general? Why is that true? Uh, why, in theory, you could see how things would go terribly wrong and somehow yet they have not. Yeah. How do you think so, about So that? I do think that about that a lot. I think the biggest two threats that we're facing as mankind, one is climate change and the other is nuclear war. So, uh, so, so those are my main two th- worries 
that I worry about. And I, I've tried to do something about climate, uh, thought about trying to do something for climate change twice. Actually, for two of my startups, I've actually commissioned studies of what we could do on those things. And we didn't really find a sweet spot, but I'm still keeping an eye out on that. If there's something where we could actually provide a market solution or optimization solution or some mm -hmm. other technology solution to problems. Right now, um, like for example, pollution credit markets was what we were looking at then. And it was much more the lack of political will by those markets were not so successful rather than bad market design. So I could go in and make a better market design, but that wouldn't really move the needle on the world very much if there's no political will. And in the US, you know, the market, uh, at least the Chicago market was just shut down uh, and, and so on. So it, then it doesn't really help how great your market design was. And so, on the nuclear side, it's more, so global warming is a more encroaching problem. You know, nuclear weapons have been here. It's an obvious problem that's just been sitting there. So how do you think about, what is the mechanism design there that just made everything seem stable? And are you still extremely worried? I am still extremely worried. So you probably know the simple game theory of MAD. So, so, so uh, this was a, a mutually assured destruction, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it doesn't require any computation. With small matrices, you can actually convince yourself that the game is such that nobody wants to initiate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very coarse-grained analysis, and it really works in a situation where you have two superpowers or small number of superpowers. Now things are very different. You have a smaller nuke, so the threshold of initiating is smaller, and you have smaller countries and non non-nation actors who may get nukes and so on. So it's, I, I think it's riskier now than it was maybe ever before. And what idea application of AI, you've talked about a little bit, but what is the most exciting to you right now? I mean, you, you're here at NIPS, new RIPS now. You have a few excellent pieces of work, but what are you thinking into the future with several companies you're doing? What's the most exciting thing or one of the exciting things? The number one thing for me right now is coming up with these scalable techniques for game solving and applying them into the real world. Uh, I'm still very interested in market design as well, and we're doing that in the optimized markets. But I'm most interested if number one right now is strategic machine strategy robot, getting that technology out there and seeing as you're in the trenches doing applications, what needs to be actually filled, what technology gaps still need to be filled. So it's so hard to just put your feet on the table and imagine what needs to be done. But when you're actually doing real applications, the applications tell you what needs to be done. And I really enjoy that interaction. Is it a challenging process to apply some of the state-of-the-art techniques you're working on and having the, the various uh, players in industry or the military or people who could really benefit from it actually use it. What's that process like of, you know, in autonomous vehicles, we work with automotive companies and they're uh, in, in many ways are a little bit old fashioned. It's difficult. They really want to use this technology. There's clearly will have a significant benefit, but the systems aren't quite in place to easily have them integrated in terms of data, in terms of compute, in terms of all these kinds of things. So do you, is that one of the bigger challenges uh, that you're facing uh, and how do you tackle that challenge? Yeah, I think that's always a challenge. Uh, that, that's kind of slowness and inertia really of let's do things the way we've always done it. You just have to find the internal champions at the customer who understand that, hey, things can't be the same way in the future. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. Right. And it's in autonomous vehicles. It's actually very interesting that the car makers are doing that, and they're very traditional. But at the same time, you have tech companies who have nothing to do with cars or transportation, mm. like Google and Baidu, really pushing on autonomous cars. I, I find that fascinating. Clearly, you're super excited about actually these ideas having an impact in the world. Uh, in terms of the technology, in terms of ideas and research, are there directions that you're also excited about, whether that's on the 
some of the approaches you talked about for imperfect information games, whether it's applying deep learning to some of these problems, is there something that you're excited in um, in the research side of things? Yeah, yeah, Lo- lots of different things in in the game solving. Okay. Uh, so solving even bigger games, uh, games where you have um, more hidden action of the player actions as well. Uh, poker is a game where really the chance actions are hidden, or some of them are hidden, but the player actions are public. Multiplayer games of various sorts, collusion, uh, opponent exploitation, all, all, and and even longer games. So games that basically go forever, but they're not repeated. Mm-hmm. So see extensive fun games that go forever. What, what what would that even look like? How do you represent that? How do you solve that? What's an example of a game like that? Or oh, is this some of the stochastic games that you mentioned? Let's say business strategy. So it's and not just modeling like a particular interaction, but thinking about the business from here to eternity, mm-hmm. or uh, I see. Or let's let's say um, military strategy. So it's not like war is going to go away. How uh, how do you think about military strategy that's going to go forever? Uh, how do you even model that? How do you know whether a move was good mm-hmm. that you, you somebody made? And, and, and so on. Uh, so that, that's kind of one direction. I'm also very interested in learning much more scalable techniques for integer programming. So we had an ICML paper this summer on that, the first automated algorithm configuration paper that has theoretical generalization guarantees. So if I see this many training examples and I tool my algorithm in this mm-hmm. way, it's going to have good performance on the real distribution, which I've not seen. So, which is kind of interesting that, you know, algorithm configuration has been going on now for at least 17 years, seriously, mm-hmm. and there has not been any generalization theory before. Well, this is really exciting and it's been, it's a huge honor to talk to you. Thank you so much, Tomas. Thank you for bringing Libratus to the world and all the great work you're doing. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun. Good questions. <laughs>